and welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we watch horror films, but we also read horror books. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. Now, usually we talk about horror films on this podcast, although we're in between seasons right now. And in a sporadic series of interviews that I've christened the Bloody Book Club, I'm also interviewing some of the authors that are behind some buzzy, grotesque, and terrifying horror books coming out. In previous episodes, I've spoken to Emily Danforth, Chelsea G. Summers, and Katrina Ward, and I've already got some exciting interviews banked for the next couple of months. I'm really excited to be making this Bloody Book Club series of interviews a bit more of a regular thing. And in today's episode, I got the distinct pleasure of speaking to author Alice Slater about her perfectly nasty debut, Death of a Bookseller. This one had me at the title and then absolutely cemented my love affair with it, with its neon cover. The novel is set in the world of corporate booksellers and follows Roach, a loner and true crime obsessive who is completely uninterested in making friends. That is, until Laura joins the bookshop where Roach works. Smelling of roses, with her cute literary tote bags and beautiful poetry, she's everyone's new favorite bookseller. But beneath that shiny veneer, Roach senses a darkness within Laura, the same darkness that Roach possesses. And as her curiosity blooms into a morbid obsession, it becomes clear that Roach is prepared to infiltrate Laura's life at any cost. Now, in the following conversation, Alice and I chat about her love of horror, the word of book selling and true crime fandom, as well as the writing of her debut novel. It's an entirely spoiler-free conversation, except for one bit at the end, because I just had to get in a question about something that happens in the book, but it does have plenty of spoiler warning. And I will also leave a timestamp in the show notes uh, so you're not spoiled about what happens. Death of Bookseller is out now in the UK in bookshops everywhere and it's a fantastic read. I can't recommend it enough. And with all that said, please enjoy my conversation with Alice Slater. Alice, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you and to talk to you about your book, Death of a Bookseller. I am just so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, a genuine pleasure. And maybe, you know, uh, as a trade, perhaps we'll get to hear your recipe for your very olive heavy martini, which you regaled me with when we first met. I did, didn't I? I love yeah. telling people about that. It's like my <laughs> one big flex that I love to show off about and make a good martini. <laughs> so before we dig into your book, I wanted to ask you, kind of, what is your own personal relationship with horror, be that books or movies or podcasts? So I think I've always just been a bit of a morbid freak. I've always loved, I've always loved horror. Um, as a kid, much like Roach in my debut, Death of a Bookseller, I grew up reading Goosebumps and Point Horror, and then quickly developed a taste for horror movies in my teens, which has never left me. Um, as an adult, I think I probably watch more horror movies than I read horror novels, but most of the literature that I read um, skews towards the dark side of life. Oh, I love it. I love it. I was also a little morbid freak. I don't know. I'm I'm not assuming, but I don't know if you grew up in the same era where from Goosebumps, I graduated to like the really true crimey rotten.com side of the internet. As oh, well yeah. Steak movies. and cheese. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah we've been file. there. Yeah. Did some damage. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, created a novelist. Who can say? Maybe. <laughs> I don't want to give those people any credit. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I mostly want to chat to you about your debut novel, Death of a Bookseller. So can you tell me about the origin point of this book? Was it a scene? Was it a moment? Was it something from your life or a character that first kind of was the genesis of the novel? Yeah, it was a character. So it was Roach. Roach came to me first. Um, it's about book selling and it's about true crime. And I worked as a bookseller for Waterstones for like six, seven years in loads of different branches. And yeah, I just started having the, this like little glimmer of an idea in like 2016 about this like, what about if what about if a bookseller was like a horrible little creep, you know? Um, so I began thinking about how this creepy little character would exist in the bookshop. And I quite liked it. I quite liked thinking about the kind of opposite of what we imagine a bookseller to be. We imagine booksellers to be, you know, really passionate about literature, uh, good at customer service, like passionate about the job. And yeah, I just created like the opposite of that in Roach. And, and the plot developed from there, like just thinking about how this person would interact with her colleagues. So tell me about these two opposites, right? So there's the idealistic version of bookseller that we sort of have in our minds, which I think is very much Laura, who's the other uh, key character, the other main character in your book. And then there's Roach, who you call this like creepy, creepy little morbid freak, right? Yeah. How, how, do you, how would you describe each one of them? And how do you think they fit or do not fit into this idea we have of a bookseller? Sure. So I think Laura, I kind of created thinking about like the archetypal kind of publishing gal almost. So she always has her publishing tote bag, like she always dresses really nicely and she puts on a very good, shiny, happy veneer. And I kind of think of that as like her customer service face, which you have to have if you are working with the public. But it's something that Roach specifically sees as a fakeness that she um, wants to infiltrate. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, Laura kind of started off as just being this very positive person that is actually covering quite a lot of trauma and, and darkness inside of her. Uh, whereas Roach, I've had a bit more fun with thinking just about uh, ways in which her behavior could escalate as the novel goes on um, and I have fleshing her out so that, you know, how would this person end up in the bookshop? What would their section be? Maybe it'd be true crime. Mm-hmm. And let's talk a little bit about true crime, because Roach is from the very first page, basically, she defines herself as a true crime. You know, you, you've kind of described Laura as a publishing gal, which mm -hmm. the more I learn about publishing, the more I was triggered by <laughs> Laura on the page. <laughs> yeah. Um, Roach is someone who makes true crime her whole personality. How would you describe that kind of archetype of a person? So I think Roach is very much like the pick me of the true crime girlies. Like she considers herself to have been in on the ground floor. She didn't get into it because of making a murderer or serial. Like she's been a fan from a much younger age, from much earlier in the kind of true crime boom that we're seeing now. Um, so yeah, she very much 
uh, does not identify with the kind of contemporary face of true crime, which actually looks a bit more like Laura. Like when we think of like fans of shows like My Favourite Murder, mm-hmm. actually we kind of think of perhaps um, millennial women, you know, wine and true crime, that's the cliche. Um, so yeah, I was kind of thinking, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of trying to imagine like a character that would kind of, how she would feel about the boom of true crime. Mm-hmm. And whilst she would be imbibing it very deeply, she would not be relating to the kind of the kind of people who are currently contributing to this like boom yeah she'd want to find a serial killer that nobody knew about yeah like she's like the hipster true crime fan do you know what I mean like she's not interested in Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy not because she's not interested she actually would definitely watch that movie but she would still be snobby about it on the internet She'd be very snobby and then she'd like, you know, go out of her way to find every, you know, the Jeremy Renner portrayal of Jeffrey Dahmer because that's that's the one that nobody has seen. Um, Yeah, 100%. And, you know, tell me a little bit about your own relationship to true crime and that that, how did that change as you started writing the book? So, as I said, I've always been quite morbid. And so I think true crime for me kind of came in with the territory. certainly as the true crime boom has happened um I really began to have to kind of like sort through my feelings about true crime I began to kind of really question how how true crime can affect our worldview like particularly in the writing of this book Mm -hmm. um I was presenting two different uh kind of feelings towards true crime right so Roach is really obsessed with it Laura actively dislikes it even though she herself is contributing to the genre through her poetry she does read it too she reads um literary memoirs that um feature murder but she feels very vehemently that it's purely exploitation and you know the book isn't a thesis you know like I didn't come into the book with like a strong idea of like what you know morality play that I want to write with this like mm-hmm. I was really just exploring how the characters would interact but through writing the book I had to read a huge amount of true crime listen to a huge amount of podcasts watch a lot of documentaries uh to really flesh out Roach's knowledge and I think I like broke something in my brain man like (laughs) like I just reached a saturation point where I felt paranoid all the time I didn't feel safe in my home like noises in the night I would wake up thinking like oh my god that is a sure sign that there was someone in the garden staking out the place we're not safe and like I lived on a ground floor flat as well so like it felt like a very real possibility that someone could break in Mm -hmm. um and it's just not not good for me it's not good for my brain and I think also I had this very strange experience at the beginning of the book Mm -hmm. Roach goes to um a live podcast recording yes for a fictional podcast called The Murder Gals uh which is based on a podcast recording I actually went to uh for my favorite murder Mm -hmm. that was like a very surreal experience mm-hmm. where, you know, hearing these like really awful stories in a room full of women who were very quick to like cheer and clap mm-hmm. if the perpetrator died or when the perpetrator is arrested. And I felt like I was at the gallows. I felt like I was in like a Victorian market square and we were watching people being executed. It was horrendously strange. And it just put me off man it like really put me off I think I've overdosed on it and I'm not saying I'll never go back to true crime I'm sure that if there's another like interesting book that's released that's kind of literary or memoir based I will read it but yeah for now I'm like (laughs) maybe taking some time out 
Wow. So like you went, even though sort of, you know, being a fan or, you know, having grown up with that stuff and not being averse to it or moralistic about it, you kind of oversaturated yourself in the research process for it. And I do wonder, because I, I kind of got the, the, the Murder Girls, by the way, which is the name of the fictional podcast, is a great name for a show. If somebody doesn't pick it up, I'd be really surprised. <laughs> but I remember so I'm a lifelong true crime fan. And in the recent boom, although I have enjoyed it, I then started to reach a point where I was like, I cannot do it that much anymore. And my favorite murder is an interesting one to talk about because I was I was briefly a listener. And I remember when they came to London and they were selling out, I think it was the Hammersmith Apollo. That's where I was, yeah. So it was like, what, three, 4,000 people there sitting mm -hmm. to watch two, two women. They do have a great tagline, stay sexy, don't get murdered. But other than that, I even then, I think that was the beginning of my disassociation with it because it struck me as just very, very no, almost non-existent research. Just like somebody reading out the Wikipedia page for a serial killer and making jokes based of it. And I'm not opposed to the gallows humor at all. I still listen to, you name check some of my still favorite podcasts in the book. But the thing that draws me in now is like, well, the research and especially the the knowledge and the change in approach that we have now in recent years, kind of partly because of just how big true crime has become, that there's an oversaturation of it that you're like, yeah, I'm not going to watch this because I can already tell from the first scene or the first episode what vibe it's going for. And I don't want to be a participant in that. And I'm kind of wondering about that experience. Like, what did you... What did you notice when you were researching all of this and reading all these memoirs, these books, listening to all these shows, going to them, watching all these documentaries, fiction uh, adaptations of real crimes? Kind of what did you notice that was the the the, the through lines of the genre? Um, I'd say one of the biggest things I noticed was a kind of apolitical approach that a lot of true crime writing seems to take. And obviously, I mean, none of it's really apolitical. Whatever you're leaving out is a political choice. Um, but yeah, I found like uh, language used often, like the way that sex workers are described, mm -hmm. often pretty disrespectful, pretty dated. Um, I also found like I was became increasingly aware of like, you know, if we're reading this work, when you're reading something like um, The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson, mm -hmm. you're reading a personal account of her family's grief. So the author Maggie Nelson, it, The Red Parts is her writing about the death of her auntie. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this very personal um, book. And then you've got something like um, Philip Carlo. He wrote a book on about the Night Stalker, about Richard Ramirez. And the research is impeccable. He has no personal connection to mm -hmm. the case whatsoever. Um, but the research is impeccable. The writing is brilliant um and it you know documents this like huge moment in Californian history and then you have things like the serial killer coloring books mm. you know or like I found in like my research I was like kind of digging around on Amazon and Waterstones like looking on online bookshops at the kind of books available and like you know lots of weird self-published stuff um or like things like really cutesy A to Z of serial killers with like kind of really aesthetically pleasing cute little illustrations on the cover 
And I was like, somewhere, we all have to draw a line somewhere, right? Like some people would find the Philip Carlo book distasteful, just purely its existence is distasteful. I don't know. I just realized that maybe my line is somewhere, is like somewhere before we hit the kind of cute shit, you know? It's making the merch. Like, exactly. Like the merch and merch, man. Mm. Like going onto Etsy, typing in the words true crime and the kind of shit that comes up. That's it right with me. It's weird to me. It's weird to like have, you know, merchandise that has serial killers' faces on it. Mm-hmm. Especially like if you're looking at people like Charles Manson, uh, mm. you know, like you can't strip the kind of political motivation of these people from like their image. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I just, and that does go into the book. You know, I, I realized that although Roach is really into true crime and I had to think realistically where I wanted to take the character mm-hmm. and actually I didn't want to write an alt-right girl. You know what I mean? Like I actually mm-hmm. did not want to take the book in that direction. So there is a whole bit where she talks about realizing that some online communities were too much for her. Yeah. Cause that shit's scary. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and I'm kind of wondering as well, as I was reading, and I have to admit, I had this almost instant distaste for Roach, even though probably she's quite similar to me in interests and in my yeah. early pick me days. But I I did start wondering, like, as we progressed and I became more and more invested and kind of spent more and more kind of, you know, my reading chunks became larger and larger because I couldn't put it down the balance of both these characters as Laura unravels and Roach goes off the deep end in a different way kind of how they're both very unlikable in radically different ways how did you know how far to push them while keeping us the readers engaged oh god that's such a good question man the truth is I didn't know how far I could push it because I know that for some readers unlikable characters are just immediately a no um but I think you know so for Roach how far I could push her it was actually reading Boy Parts by Eliza Clark mm. at that point I'd already written a lot of the book or at least I'd written a lot of Roach's sections and I was worried like I was worried that Roach was just too much too distasteful too gross that the character goes too dark and that readers wouldn't wouldn't relate to it and then I read boy parts and I was like fuck it <laughs> like, <laughs> you know if Eliza's getting away with that shit I, yeah. I can do Roach like Roach will be fine um but I also in the in that process I realized that in some places Roach's voice was actually too light mm-hmm. that the character was a little bit inconsistent because I just couldn't bring myself to be too negative about book selling I just couldn't do it I love it too much it was you know I loved it I loved it so much and I could feel that love was coming through in the character and that's where Laura's voice actually came from I kind of cut just cut all these chunks out I was like this isn't really right this is Laura but I felt like real life isn't made up of goodies and baddies we're not Mm. just good people or bad people and I also feel like actually traumatized people can sometimes behave in quite strange ways. They can be quite selfish or they can be um, quite difficult, you know, or they can uh, carry their trauma um, without necessarily realizing it into quite dark places like drinking alcohol, staying out too late, mm-hmm. um, having sex or chasing after the wrong people, that kind of thing. So, yeah, with Laura, even though I knew, I was like, oh, sometimes she's really annoying and people are really not going to like her. They're really not going to like how hard she chases after fellow bookseller Eli, who has mm-hmm. taken, he has a girlfriend. I knew they would, like, she can be quite vain. I was like, I know she's a little bit annoying, but 
you're not entitled to perfect victims you know mm-hmm. like and she goes through some shit stuff so I don't know mate it was a bit risky I know that some people will really not like either character but I quite like books with horrible people in them yeah. you know I quite like hanging out with weirdos yeah and and it's it's interesting you you bring up boy parts as well because what well actually I started thinking a little bit about my year of rest and relaxation only and and Eileen if only because especially the descriptions the physical descriptions of both the characters and you mentioned that word that I'm quite fascinated with because I think we are kind of in a gross girly era uh especially in literature where tell me a little bit about kind of the physicality that you bring into into your writing like there's quite minute descriptions that made me almost gag <laughs> really yeah <laughs> you know like there's this you get a real sense of who they are physically you also you get a real sense of it, it sounds weird but like i could almost smell roach in certain pages and this sort of sense of like almost disgust or grossness depending on whose point of view you're you're looking through can you tell me a little bit about like bringing in that physical element to them that isn't always pretty and isn't always appealing to imagine yeah so I think it is very much depending on the perspective because they do both notice I mean we'll start with scent although I think Mm. lots of different senses are used in the kind of bodiliness of the book but I notice smell a lot. I have a very sensitive nose. I used to work for Lush. So I like to put a lot of smell in my work, whether it's nice smells so or horrible interesting. smells. Um, and yeah, I definitely think like, you know, Roach notices Laura's perfume. Like she even buys the same perfume. Like mm-hmm. she she really picks up on the positives of Laura, even when she is hating her. Um, whereas Laura, you know, she's repulsed by Roach. So she notices everything. And like Roach is also, the, the book gets quite claustrophobic. Like Roach is always there in the way that like in retail or in work in general, like you're very stuck with your colleagues, Mm -hmm. but in retail, like there's nowhere else you can go. You're stuck on the shop floor together. So I kind of created that sense of claustrophobia with like the smell of her breath, like being so close, you could see the little whiteheads on her nose. Mm -hmm. And like, these are things, if it's someone you love, you kind of ignore, you disregard. Whereas when it's someone you dislike, it's really invasive. It, you know, it makes you feel really like, oh, I just wish you would take three steps back, man. Like you're very in my space. So that's what I was trying to create with that, that sense of being stuck with someone. And tell me a little bit about, um, you know, this obsession, because Roach in particular, uh, Laura is obsessed kind of with herself and her own past and, you know, is, is trying to figure out her trauma or how to navigate it. But Roach is fully fixated on Laura. So what do you think about Laura makes Roach fixate on her so much? I think it's because Roach doesn't know who she is. You know, like she has created this unlikable persona that she like kind of lives in mm-hmm. um, almost as a defense mechanism to protect herself from the rejection she experiences on a daily basis from others because mm-hmm. she's a bit of an oddball. And I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. I think what she sees in Laura is someone who, despite quite clearly having some kind of a dark streak to her, that she fits in very effortlessly. Mm-hmm. I think that what Roach really craves most of all is just company. You know, mm-hmm. like she's a really lonely person and she grew up in a very lonely environment. All she really wants is a connection, but she doesn't really know how to go about creating that organically. And so the more that she 
pulls towards Laura, the more Laura pushes away. And so it, you know, becomes this real tug of war. And ultimately that sense of rejection, I think, it, Rage doesn't have the tools in her toolbox to know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And and I want to move on to bookselling because you, you sort of yes. made a comment earlier that you didn't want to be too down on the world of bookshops and bookselling because you love it so much. Tell me a little bit about your life as a bookseller and kind of what elements of that world did you want to bring into the book and which ones did you want to avoid tapping into? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I mean, I was a bookseller for six years. And in that time, I worked in a huge number of shops all over London, but around the country as well. Um, Moving around doing things like I was quite good at window displays and like visual merchandising and stuff like that. So I would quite often travel if like a shop was having a refit or Mm. preparing a shop for Christmas. Like I would basically be like the team that Laura, Sharona and Eli are on. Like that would be me hopping in my mate's car and we'd like be going all over the place. So I saw lots of fun things and like there's lots of weird secrets in, in, in bookshops, but in retail in general, like I think as a consumer, you're very focused on the products, mm-hmm. whereas there's always weird shit that you're just not aware of or not seeing. Oh my God, tell me something. Tell me one weird I, detail. Okay. Like the Gower Street Waterstones yes. has a secret rooftop terrace. <gasps> yeah. So the shop it has been a bookshop for at least since the 50s the building has existed since like 1905 I think mm-hmm. and obviously like throughout there was a period of time when every like retail you just there was no online shopping whatsoever so a branch like that Gower Street branch it's five floors it's massive you would have a team of like 60 booksellers working mm-hmm. in it so the whole top floor is a massive staff room and at once upon a time it had a canteen in it and also it has doors that lead out to a rooftop garden so there's nothing we can do with it like that space it's where you know you have to have a cash office that's off the shop floor that's super secure um you have to have like various other things so it has to kind of remain back of house mm-hmm. so yeah we just had this beautiful staff only rooftop terrace and they're like the you know I have photos of booksellers up there in the summer like we go and eat our lunch out there it's gorgeous Oh my god, I'm so <laughs> jealous. It's like one of my favorite water stones. Yeah. And I've never been able also, to go. Yeah, totally. But then also on the other hand, in the basement. Yeah. Um, oh, the basement, you know, there's the record store um yes. space there now, and like there's a gallery where we have events, but then there's the goods in area, like the back of house area is downstairs as well. And in through there, <laughs> there was like this little um kind of fire escape that leads to one of those. You know, sometimes you see in the street, like those glass little windows in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a little hole under there that was just, I called it Totropolis because (laughs) it was just full of totes of old books (laughs) that like old stock that we couldn't sell, just like stuff that needed to be pulped, but it's actually cheaper just to leave it there to rot. Uh So one day it was like my job to go in there and sort that room out. And I opened this one tote that probably hadn't been opened in like 10 years. And the books inside had all rotted, but each one had gone moldy in a different way. So oh. like one of them was like green. Another one was covered in like this weird kind of probably like some kind of spider egg sacks that had long been vacated. Anyway, it was absolutely disgusting and I nearly vomited. So, you know, like two oh sides God. of a coin, man, good and evil, <laughs> heaven and hell. You're making me think of the time I've only worked in a, in a bookshop once for, I think, 
definitely two summers, maybe longer than that, and maybe it was two years and I'm just condensing it. When I used to live in Madrid, I basically begged to work in this one bookshop because they had a, a bookshop cat. And it was the oh. only bookshop that sold kind of used books, but in multiple different languages. So I just wanted to read books in English. So it was just yeah. there. And I figured, well, if I'm there, I can probably get free books. And I think I worked there for the first summer for free just in exchange for free stock basically i was like if something oh comes God, in that i yeah. wanted can i take it and it was like yeah <laughs> you're just here eight hours a day for no money sure you can take the book that we would sell for a euro 50 <laughs> please <laughs> and i ended up working there for a while and kind of quit when i um when i got my first kind of like film job but it was still just the best feeling especially when there was no customers I didn't enjoy yeah. the selling so much as just uh, refitting everything in the bookshop and trying to throw away the shitty used books. You know, my the owner was very strange. He would even have weird freebie books that you'd get with magazines or with newspapers, and he'd try to sell them. And oh the good God, stuff he'd water. hide away. Yeah, and the good stuff he'd yeah. hide away in a cellar or in books that he'd take to some mysterious storage facility because he could sell it possibly for more money on Amazon than actually on the shop floor. Oh my God. It was very strange, but there was a cat, there was a kitten that wandered in one day and then it just stayed in the bookshop and it grew up in the bookshop and then they took it oh, home with them. so cute. It was I love adorable. It. it was the best. It's the best. But then, you know, that's the other thing as well, like with the book selling element of Death of a Bookseller, mm. is I feel like when we see books in fiction, whether it's a, um, bookshops rather in fiction, whether it's yeah. movies, television or books, it's normally stores like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not selling the mad shit books, but, you know, like Bookshop Cat, Super Cozy, Independent. Yeah. Um, you know, really community driven. And I really wanted to write something about corporate book selling. It's just that's such a different world, you know? Yeah. What are your favorite? What are your favorite bookshops at films? Oh my God. You can't even ask me that question because now I can't think of a single one. I don't really <laughs> like, like obviously the obvious answer is something like Notting Hill, but mm. I don't vibe with it. I don't really like, I don't really like romance shit very much, I'm afraid. Um, what about the the Tom Hanks, Nora Ephron one? Um, you've got mail. You've got mail. I've never seen it. Oh, maybe you'd like it because that's precisely the like the little cutesy indie bookshop that has way too many employees for the size of it. And it's only children's books. And then the corporate one that it's sort of based on Borders. Before ah, Borders went yeah. Pretty, yeah, that's operated by Tom Rest Hanks. Yeah. yeah. R.I.P. You know what I would love? Yeah. My dream would be there's a book called The Book of the Most Precious Substance mm-hmm. by Sarah Gran. I don't know if you know it, but it's about um, a bookseller who is tasked with finding this like occult book. There's only like four or five that ever existed. There's maybe only three left in existence. And if she can find it, this other bookseller has a connection to a buyer who will pay like millions for it if she can find it. So the book is basically her tracking down each of the known copies and finding out like who owns them and like how they've ended up with them. And like, it's so good. And I just think it would be make such a great movie, but unfortunately it's so horny. <laughs> I feel like it would be quite difficult to film without being classed as an adult movie. Or maybe yeah, it should be classed as an adult book. movie. Yeah, like sexy, gross, there's like loads of witchy shit in it. Like, oh, it's brilliant. You'd Stop love it, it, mate. You'd love it. Stop it. I'm gonna buy it right now. I'm so into yeah, this. You should. It's like one of my favorite books from last year. It's so good. 
It really made me think of, unfortunately, the talent involved in the film I'm about to mention are all triple fully cancelled, but there is a Roman Polanski movie with Johnny Depp. Ugh. Yes, exactly. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I apologize for bringing this up, but it is relevant because it's basically the same plot. It's it's called The Ninth Gate. Yeah, it's I, was about, say, I was trying to remember what it was called. Yeah, yeah. It's about a rare, uh, rare book stealer who sets out to find this mysterious occult book and it might or might not be possibly Satan's Bible or something like that, something devilish. And it kind of has no ending, but I remember always being really into it when I was a teenager because of this mysterious, almost detective figure of the bookseller. It's like, I did not realize that books could be such dirty, uh, you know, dark business. Oh yeah, man. And listen, like this is the best thing about the book of the most precious substance. You get that vibe, but without mm. fucking supporting Polanski. It's perfect. Yes. Very good. So <laughs> going back to um to the book itself, before we move on to talking a little bit about the ending of Death of a Bookseller, I just wanted to ask you, what would you like readers to take away from the book? Ooh. God, that's such a good question. Okay. I feel almost like it it would almost feel arrogant to say that I I know what I want a reader to take away from it. What I really want is for readers to have a good time with it. Like that was my ultimate goal was to write something that is super readable and like propelling. That was what I wanted to do. But I guess if I was to like offer some kind of like a gift within the pages, I guess I would I would like people to maybe think a little bit about the politics of the true crime that they imbibe Mm -hmm. that's like maybe the only thing and it doesn't mean that they have to fall into uh the same conclusion that I have in my journey but just think a little bit about what the stuff that you read and what you what it watches what it does to your brain how it makes you feel about the world that you live in I really want to ask you a couple of things about the ending. So I just want to make sure that we do a little spoiler warning for anyone who's been listening so far, but hasn't picked up uh, Death of a Bookseller yet. Uh, I think by the time this comes out, it's going to be out in bookstores everywhere. So make sure to get a copy, read it, then come back to this part of the conversation. If you don't mind spoilers, then feel free, listen, listen ahead, you know, live your life. I support you fully. So... I want to chat about the ending because let's do it. It, it might be sound, it might be sound, it might sound like a basic question, Alice, but the book is called "The Death of a Bookseller." We do not get a death. Tell me about this uh, this decision. Like, why did you want to end the book with um, with both Roach and Laura surviving when the entire this propulsive read was being like, oh my God, Roach is going to murder her. Well, firstly, as I was writing it, I don't mm. plot my books. Okay. I, I really, I hate doing that, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily the best way to write them, but I can't help it. You can't go against the grain of your own brain. So I wasn't sure. I was like, maybe. And that, okay. that's why Laura is written in the present tense. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it helps to differentiate the two voices, but also yeah. it means that in terms of like the kind of philosophy of narration, she's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. If it's written in the past tense, then it's the voice of someone who has survived something. Like mm-hmm. for them to be telling the story, they've obviously lived to tell the tale. 
Laura is, however, telling you everything in real time. So I didn't, I hadn't decided until I got mm. to the end. I wasn't sure whether or not she'd live or die. And, in, you know, in early drafts, I was pretty sure she was going to die. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I ended up deciding that although she survives the encounter, of course, there is um, an epilogue, which perhaps she does not. So there's actually still a question mark over whether or not mm-hmm. she lives to tell the tale. Um, the title, however, is also kind of metaphorical. There is a bookseller does die in the book because Roach leaves bookselling. And so does Laura in a way. She, you know, mm-hmm. she leaves one version of herself and steps into a different, a different type of bookselling. So just me mm-hmm. being cute. Just, you know, me being cute, making promises, <laughs> maybe failing to keep them. <laughs> I did I did love the epilogue, especially because it because it does leave it on a question mark. And I'm wondering after everything that happens after this massive encounter and this absolutely, you know, fortuitous escape of being accused of attempted murder that happens to Roach and seemingly this happy ending for both of them when they go their separate ways and live their best lives and become both of them become writers, you know, kind of published writers. Um, Why do you think Roach keeps coming back to Laura? Like this obsession does not extinguish itself i think because she feels that she now has proof that they are the same you know like but they're mm-hmm. although they've gone their separate waves or the ways although their paths have diverged they've actually remained perpendicular and mm-hmm. have ended up both have ended, ended up doing something i think also roach believes that laura will be maybe impressed mm-hmm. that it will let laura will maybe consider it a good thing maybe be excited about it um, but it's interesting that you said that you felt that they both end up kind of in their own ways having a version of a happy ending. Because mm-hmm. I always feel like in the book, Laura Roach starts off the best version of herself. Mm-hmm. And obviously, and I, I kind of feel like she she kind of, uh, she disintegrates too. She becomes a worse person as the book progresses. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Laura starts off as her worst, in her worst place. Mm-hmm. And actually by the end of the book, she's the one who has progressed to a better place, uh, sort of. That's quite interesting because, you know, as as I was progressing, kind of one of the things you mentioned before is that Roach just doesn't have the toolkit to deal with a lot of situations. And in the way that I was reading her was that she essentially, for better or worse, she gains some tools that she did not have before. She starts managing the social elements a lot more. And I think the encounter at the, at the essentially kind of, you know, the, the thinly veiled Waterstones staff party. Um, <laughs> Actually, that's not based on a Waterstones oh, really? party. Ten- oh. Well, technically, no. So it's um, Hatchards on the Strand. The yes. old, so Hatchards is, yeah, like one of, I think it's the old, I think it's the oldest bookshop in the UK. That might be wrong, okay. though, but they have a very opulent Christmas party each year, which I have never oh. been to. Do. That was my pure speculation as to what I would imagine it would be like. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it's kind of based on knowing that that happens, or at least it used to happen. I don't know if it still does. I love it because I used to go to BFI staff parties, which were very, oh, you know, yeah. used to be great and sort of, you know, extravagant and everybody would come together. And in my head, I was imagining kind of that vibe. I was like, oh, I, I imagine this is what a Waterstone staff Christmas party is like. But no, uh, the only the only Christmas parties I ever went to with uh, Waterstones were generally to little restaurants, <laughs> roaches and all what they used to do before Sharona gets them into central London. 
And, you know, but I remember reading that scene and seeing kind of their personas almost go in opposite directions. You know, Laura, since she losing herself and losing her shit, really not even being able to maintain her vanity, not being able to maintain appearances and kind of showing that really ugly side of herself to other people, which she hasn't so far. Kind of the that veneer has been really closely guarded. Whether it's Roach by contrast, and even though she's literally wearing some of Laura's clothes and her mother's pendant and kind of is cosplaying or taking away part of those uh, that appearance that Laura had. And she's sober and she's more in control of things. So in a way, perhaps it's not making her a better person, but it certainly, for me at least, seemed like a happy ending because she was gaining the ability to live and to present herself in a way that she could find more things to do or she could, you know, delve deeper into her her interests or pretend better, which is dangerous for something for someone like Roach. <laughs> no, I think you're right there, actually, because although I mean, I think in that scene, she's still not being her authentic self. Mm, you know, like mm-hmm. she's found a different costume to wear. Um, but you are right, actually, that by the end of the book, um, when she's kind of there's the final scene with um her boyfriend Sam and they kind mm-hmm. of figure out what they're going to do and you know what happened and that kind of thing maybe actually from then on there is like she has kind of found herself in a way she's found someone who she can be herself with and I mean she's still not really herself because she creates her own persona in that situation as well but yeah I dig it do you as her creator uh do you know who Roach is like do you know who the real her is I don't know if such a thing exists. I think they're all really her. Like that's the kind of the paradox of not knowing yourself is that like, it's still all her, you know, like Mm -hmm. she is just trying to figure out where, you know, the pendulum swinging between these different personalities, different personas. Eventually that pendulum will stop and, you know, maybe the real her exists somewhere in the middle, but yeah, like the idea of the, the kind of false self and the real self, I mean, it's all still the self it's all in the same bubble of personhood Mm. so I don't know and and I just wanted to ask you before we um before we wrap up because you I know it's it's probably very difficult to answer but it's just for for my own curiosity you mentioned earlier that you don't plot your books when you're writing so can you tell me a little bit about your writing process and I mean this in any way you want to interpret this whether it's like well I write from 6 to 8 a.m or from 2 a.m to 4 a.m or on the tube or on my notes app or whatever I'm genuinely very curious how writers do their writing so like all of the above is true (laughs) for me like um yeah sadly it's quite chaotic in my brain I wish I really wish that I could give you this like very smug and clean like I write between X and my time and whatever. But no, I realized that the only way that I can get my books written is that I have to just go with the flow of my own chaos. So I love writing on my notes app. Um, quite often I'll write on my notes app, uh, like on the tube or in bed, quite often in front of horror movies. Like when I just cannot, I mean, so my day job, just to interrupt myself, my day job is I, I work as a copywriter. Mm-hmm. So I spend all of my time in front of a laptop 
typing, writing, thinking about words. And sometimes I find it so difficult. It's so exhausting to go from daytime writing Mm -hmm. to my nighttime writing Mm -hmm. um, that actually I'll put a horror movie on and I will just get my WhatsApp, um, WhatsApp, my, you know, iPhone notes app out and I'll write the scene and it'll be super thin. And like, it'll just be kind of a sketch of the scene. Mm-hmm. I do tend to write quite short mm-hmm. and then fill out and fluff and and elaborate later on. But yeah, I will kind of sketch my scenes out sometimes in my notes app. Sometimes if I'm in the office and I'm like, oh my God, actually I should have, I just realized I should have this, this should happen. I might email myself like a couple of lines, just anything that just that I'll remember when I actually have the time and the headspace to write it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I write mostly in the evenings because I'm terrible at getting out of bed. I just, I'm so bad at going to bed. So I'm awful at getting up early. But yeah, I usually will clock off from my day job, clock in to like my night job and then just get the damn thing done. I love it. I genuinely love the the honesty in that answer, Alice. And <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for your candor and best of luck with Death of a Bookseller. May it end up on every single bookshelf that um, of every single bookstore in London. Oh, thank you. I feel like now I don't even know what to say because that was so kind. But thank you so much for having me. I've had the best time. Oh, Loved good. It. I'm pleased. That's what I want my guests to take out of this experience. Have a nice time. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> 